James Olson is a former CIA, CIA director of counterintelligence. He and his wife, Meredith, were international spies in the CIA for more than 30 years. Because of a very specific death threat, they eventually came out from their deep cover. Olson summarized what that was like in a recent interview. He said, it was traumatic. Meredith and I never wanted to come out from undercover. A lot of our colleagues retire undercover and never have to reveal the fact that they've been leading a double life. My parents did not know I was in the CIA. Meredith's parents did not know. Our children did not know. Our friends did not know. But we had to be very careful about protecting the integrity of our cover because our effectiveness depended on it. I don't want to over-dramatize this, but it's true. Our personal safety and our families depended on our cover. Our first concern was the difficult conversation we'd have to have with our parents. Would they be hurt by what they didn't know about us? Both sets of parents reacted independently in exactly the same way. You know what that was? They said, thank you for not telling us sooner. We told our children because we had a death threat in Vienna from an Iranian terrorist, a death threat against me personally by name, Meredith personally by name, and against each of our three children. And that was frightening. It was real. We stayed and finished our mission, but that was the time when we felt that because of the death threats to the children, we needed to bring our oldest into the picture. He was only 16. So we sat him down in an acoustically secure room, and we said, Listen, Jeremy, Mom and dad are spies for the CIA. <laughs> the true story of Advent reminds us that there is, always, there is always more happening in the world than first meets the eye. In today's passage, we behold the, the coming of a, of, a, of a regional king. After the king arrives, a local government official just kind of casually refers to a certain Jesus. The phrase basically means some guy named Jesus. To the official, his reference to Jesus is, is an insignificant part of the story. But there is always more happening in the world than meets the eye. Our passage is Acts 25, verses 13 through 27. So recall last week that Paul appealed to Festus, the local governor. He appealed that he would send him to Caesar. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix, 
And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of, of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you shall hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So, Holy Spirit, Lead us now. Would you please use our time to bolster our confidence in what is true about Jesus? Do this through your incomparable might, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Since the day God told the serpent in Genesis 3 that someone was coming. Someone was coming born of a woman who would crush his head. Since that day, the serpent has been trying to destroy the seed of the woman so that the one who was to come would never arrive. But the story of Advent, that is the Christmas story, is that despite Satan's best efforts, the one who was to come, God's deliverer, born of a woman, he did in fact come. And because the dragon slayer accomplished his full mission on earth, 
we are still celebrating his coming 2,000 years later. Now, our story, our story breaks down in, in two scenes. In the first scene, we see the coming of the regional king in verses 13 through 22. And in the second scene, we see it's just saturated with, with pomp and circumstance regarding that king in verses 23 through 27. Now, in light of Advent, let's approach the two scenes by comparing them with the coming of another king and the pomp and the circumstance surrounding his arrival. The main idea that emerges in our passage in light of the the full testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that the claim about Jesus here in our passage warrants not only investigation, but ultimately worship. So, then in, in this first section, in verses 13 through 22, King Agrippa, probably to congratulate Festus on his new appointment, arrives in Caesarea with his sister Bernice. <clears throat> Festus takes advantage of the opportunity, since the king is going to be staying with him for a while, to, to, to bring up this prisoner that was left behind by Felix. I think he wants to get the king's counsel because it's a a particularly prickly situation here. There doesn't seem to be anything that Paul has done that is actually worthy of condemnation and death. And yet the Jews are demanding his execution. Festus tells us at the end of our passage, I didn't really have anything to write about him. And I don't think he wants to send a prisoner to the emperor who at this time is Nero without a good reason for sending him. Now, as we've learned over the past few weeks, what makes this situation kind of touchy is that Paul is a Roman citizen. And just just last week, he appealed to Caesar But the only detail at all that Luke records that Festus relays to King Agrippa is found in in verse 19. The dispute seems to be centered around some guy named Jesus who is dead. But who Paul keeps talking about as if he's alive. So Festus tells us in verse 20, Being at a loss at how to investigate these things, he tried to pass Paul back off to Jerusalem. He doesn't know how to get to the bottom of the matter. Paul says, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. I'm appealing to Caesar. King Agrippa, when he hears this, says, man, I want to hear hear this man myself. So if Acts Acts was a book-length story, or if, if, if this was a scene in a movie, I, as your narrator, would then take us back so that we could see the history of Agrippa and his family, so we might further appreciate the fascinating intrigue that is unfolding, that is unfolding in this moment. In our passage, King 
Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II. Now, to trace their family line, we need to go back to Advent. And by that, I mean the very, the very first Advent. Matthew tells us in the second chapter of his gospel that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Jesus was born, Herod the king, that was Herod the great, he was greatly troubled because of an ancient prophecy found in Micah 5.2 that a Jewish king was to be born in Bethlehem whose reign was foretold centuries ago. So, Herod summoned the wise men privately to try to figure out where Jesus was. Not so he could exult in him, but so that he could execute him. So the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman continues. And it hits a flashpoint when when Herod can't find Jesus. He therefore ordered that every male child under two years old in Bethlehem be thrust through with a sword. Merry Christmas. Imagine the horror. It's a good reminder for us that, that as sweet as the, the baby in the manger actually was in Christmas, that is the coming of the Son of God on that first Advent morning, was, was nothing less than an act of war. Tragically, you would have hoped that killing inconvenient infants was a thing of the past. But 2,000 years later, sadly, it is, it is not. But maybe we, as the people of God, can do something about that. So please, continue to pray fervently. Because the issues, the cases that are before the Supreme Court right now in this land are a matter of life and death for the most vulnerable among us. This is a spiritual war. So as the people of God pray, pray that God's spirit would move among the hearts of the Supreme Court justices and Roe would be overturned. Now Agrippa II's great uncle was, was Herod Antipas. Antipas was so corrupt He was so corrupt, he beheaded John the Baptist for confronting him about the fact that he had taken his brother's wife as a mistress. When when Herod Antipas heard of the fame of Jesus, he thought it was John the Baptist coming back to haunt him. Matthew 14 and verse 2. In Luke 13, 32, some Pharisees came to Jesus. And you heard that right. 
some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day finish my course. In other words, tell that deceiver, I am freeing the world from the rule of Satan and there is nothing you can do to stop me. My ministry will end when I am finished with it and not one second before I say so. Which, by the way, is the same way Paul summarizes his message when he stands before Agrippa, as we'll hear next week. Paul said that Jesus commanded him with these words, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the power of Satan to God. So King Herod Agrippa I was King Agrippa II's father. Herod Agrippa I thrust one of Jesus' Jesus's best friends through with a sword. Recall that the inner circle around Jesus was Peter and James and John, the sons of thunder. Acts 12.1, about that time Herod the king, that is Agrippa I, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Remember that he planned on killing Peter too. So he took him into prison, but God sent an angel to deliver him. It was just a few chapters ago in Acts. King Herod Agrippa I was so full of pride that he once addressed the people, and the people received it really well. So he just, he just reveled in their praise. But Acts 13, verse 23, records that because Herod did not give glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So, King Agrippa here, King Agrippa Herod II, he has quite the family pedigree. But we should note that, that, that there's a lot on the table here. There is danger both for the king and for the apostle Paul. For Paul, there is family history here of killing people associated with King Jesus. But Agrippa is in danger too, for his father was killed for not giving glory to God. Agrippa's intrigued by the mention of Jesus. He's intrigued by the dispute that's happening, this Jesus that Paul is proclaiming. You wonder why that is? Could it be that Jesus has been the topic of conversation at feasts and perhaps some family gatherings over the years? 
What about your family gatherings over the next few weeks? Will Jesus be the topic of conversation? I hope so. Look, even if your family lineage could give Herod's line a run for the money, be bold. Be bold this Advent. Ask the Lord to give you an opportunity to bring up the good news about Jesus. Because the gospel has the power to transform your family for generations. But what if you do that? What if you're sitting around the table and you bring up Jesus? You bring up the claims about Jesus and, and say he is the only means of salvation. And what if your family member, what if your weird uncle, it's always the weird uncle, what if, what if he, like, like Festus here, he just dismisses the claim out of hand? Are you at a loss? Should you be staggered by that? To borrow the words of Festus here in verse 20, are we at a loss for investigating the claims about Jesus? Not in the slightest. One of the issues that is striking to me is that Roman historical books and documents have been discovered that, that date back to this exact time period. So to be clear, there's no Christian bias here because they're not Christians. In fact, as you can tell by a lot of their writings, they hate Christians Many conservative scholars, including the ESV translators, they date the writing of Acts to between 62 and 64 AD. So, so how far removed are the Roman documents in July of 64 AD? When Nero was emperor, a great fire broke out in Rome. And a famous Roman historian named Tacitus commented on the great fire. He wrote, nothing could stifle the scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order of Nero. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd called Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, who ruled from 26 to 36 AD. The pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital of Rome itself. In other words, this exactly parallels what we read in the New Testament and more specifically in the book of Acts. A man referred to as 
Pliny the Younger became the Roman governor of Bithynia and Pontus between 109 and 111 AD. So to put that in perspective, how far are we removed from that? In terms of the writing, the Apostle John is thought to have written the book of Revelation sometime between 85 and 95 AD. The Apostle John personally discipled a man named Polycarp. who lived in this region at the same time that Pliny was governing, and he would have been about 40 years old at the time. Pliny wrote letters to the emperor Trajan about how to deal with Christians. In one letter he wrote, In the meanwhile, the method I have observed toward those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. If they confessed it, I repeated the same question a second and third time, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be led off to execution. If people denied they were Christians, I had them worship your statue and the images of gods and curse Christ. All things, it is said, no real Christian can do. The Christians affirmed, however, the whole of their guilt or error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light and singing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and of binding themselves with a solemn oath not to do wicked deeds, never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, or to falsify their word. Now, remember what we're talking about. We're talking about evidence that Christianity is in fact true. That what the New Testament says is true actually occurred in history. This is just corroborating evidence. Josephus, another famous historian, was Jewish and he was not a follower of Jesus. He was born in Jerusalem just a few years after Jesus was executed in AD 37, and he lived to 100 AD. In other words, he was alive during the same time and in the same region as the book of Acts describes. Josephus wrote about John the Baptist, and Josephus wrote about Jesus Christ. In one powerful section of his Antiquities, he writes, Annas the high priest at a time during a transition of power convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who is called Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. So James, Jesus' friend, was thrust through with a sword James, Jesus' brother, a leader in the church, was stoned to death under Roman rule by the instigation of the Jewish leaders, according to Roman sources. And so the New Testament is verified and vindicated once again. Now, you may or may not realize this, but, but James who we know Jesus appeared directly to after his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. James wasn't the only member of Jesus' family who came to believe that Jesus was the Christ after his resurrection. Because you may remember from earlier in the New Testament that his brothers mocked Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. 
That is until he rose from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul, he's talking about those who are working with him, those who are working alongside of him. And he asks, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Peter? Do you see what he's asking? He's saying that the brothers of Jesus were with the apostles proclaiming the good news about Jesus with their believing spouses. They had all become convinced that Jesus was the Christ. Why? They saw him executed. And three days later, he was alive. Thus, Christmas meets Easter. Now, Festus... Festus may have been ignorant, but he's the one who chose not to look into the claim Paul made about Jesus. Back to your weird uncle at the dinner table. If you bring up claims about Jesus and your uncle just dismisses it, How should you respond? The first thing to do is to ask him, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Because what I'm talking about is historical fact. The reason that I'm a Christian is not because I have this fantasy about who Jesus is. I'm convinced by the historical evidence that Jesus is the Christ. Have you ever looked into it? I challenge you to. I challenge you to look into it so that you too might come to saving faith in Jesus. That's why John wrote his gospel, right? He tells us why he wrote it, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to be confident. My heart is burdened that you would be confident in conversations that might happen with family or if you're just struggling over this Christmas season, no, be reminded of the fact that your faith is rooted and grounded in historical fact. There is tremendous evidence that Jesus lived, died, and rose again from the dead. So rejoice this season in Jesus Christ. Further, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 1 and verse 4. Therefore, the claim about Jesus, the claim that Festus just kind of blew off, not only warranted investigation, but consistent with the first century Christians, it also warranted the worship of Jesus as God. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with, with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. 
Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So let's, let's look at two sides of the same coin here in this section. In, in the first place, the king's interest, he's been piqued here about Jesus. And, and so all the dignitaries file in with their pomp and majesty and, and condescension to examine this intriguing little prisoner. Festus is hoping this exercise will prove to be worthwhile so that he has something significant to write to Nero. He doesn't want to send him without an explanation. That's one side of the coin. But as we noted earlier, there is always more happening in the world than meets the eye. So let's ask the question, what is the true circumstance that has occasioned this gathering in the audience hall. The other side of the coin is that King Jesus, the ultimate ruler of the world, has sent this this little man both to proclaim good news and to warn these earthly dignitaries. Doug Wilson explains, from the very start, from the very beginning, the life of Jesus presented a potent threat to the status quo, first advent. This threat was not merely the result of Herod's paranoia. Herod knew what many Christians do not. The birth of this child meant that the old way of ruling mankind was doomed. The transition from the old way of rule to the new way of rule was not going to be simple or easy but it was going to happen. The birth of the baby in Jerusalem meant the world was going to change. Agrippa's great-grandfather knew it. Satan himself knew it. And the prophet Simeon knew it too. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple, Simeon took baby Jesus into his arms and he said now your servant can depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation this is the good news of the gospel that all and any who would place their faith in this Christ could be saved from the wrath of God and have relationship with him restored forever And here is the warning. Simeon also said, Behold, this child is appointed for the rise and the fall of many 
in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. In the book of Acts, Jesus is loved and Jesus is embraced and Jesus is worshipped again and again and again. And in the book of Acts, Jesus is hated and opposed and so are his followers. Anyone who dares to proclaim the truth about him and they are hated and opposed again and again and again. So Acts has proven that the good news is powerful and that the prophetic warning was true. The Jewish religious leaders came to understand that everything had to change now that Jesus had arrived. A few believed in him. Many more opposed him. Those that hated Jesus thought that disposing of him would be the end of the matter. But three days later, everything changed. As the greatest story ever told continues to, to unfold in Acts, we learn that the true king who came to earth, who defeated death, and who ascended back into glory, he's now sent his little messenger once again to testify to the facts about him. This time, before a king and his court. Back to your holiday meal. There's something tragic at the end of this section that may not be obviously apparent. Festus says, I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Whether it's your relative that's opposing Jesus or whether it's Festus who's opposing Jesus here, I don't think either of them would say that they are opposing Jesus. But the fact of the matter is that it's true. The reason is because there's, there's every reason that Festus should have looked into the matter. How tragic is it? How tragic is it that, that Festus is hearing the good news of the greatest man who has ever lived spoken or proclaimed to him through the greatest evangelist who has ever lived? And he says, I don't know what to say about this guy. What about the truth? What about the truth? If you're not sure if it's true, look into it. You can find out the information. And so, as we engage with our, our relatives or whomever over the holiday season, we don't do so with a heart of contempt. Why, why don't you get it? We do so with brokenheartedness, saying, please, please look into the claims about Jesus because they're actually true. And since they are true, you need Jesus more than you need anything else this season. 
Don't be scared. Don't be scared to share the truth about Jesus because it's true historically based on the New Testament, based on Jewish historians, based on Roman historians. They're all saying the same thing about Jesus. The facts are not in dispute. The question is, do you believe? From the moment Jesus arrived on earth, without pomp, and in completely humble circumstance, as unlikely as it, as it may have seemed at the time, the world would never be the same again. So as we continue to celebrate during this Advent season, the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, may the Holy Spirit instill us with confidence about the reality and the historical nature of our faith in Jesus. But if you think that the Christmas story is just too unlikely to be true, consider that that's probably exactly how 16-year-old Jeremy Olson felt when his parents first sat him down and said, son, mom and dad are spies. Just because something sounds crazy at first doesn't mean it isn't true. Be confident this Advent season because Jesus is who he says he is and he will be forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you sent Jesus to earth just as we recount the, the story of Advent, as we see everything now in light of that reality, I, I pray that, that you would strengthen us in our inner being. Holy Spirit, would you do a, a fortifying work in us to drive out fear so that we might freely and joyfully talk with others about the good news regarding Jesus, our Lord. And I pray that over these next few weeks, our main testimony to others would be a testimony of overwhelming and overflowing joy. Because we of all people, we of all people, have a reason to be joyful. Cause us to rejoice now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.